0: everyone. I'm back with mind rolling and I'm I'm back with a man who, um, boy, these times are, uh, we would suggest that Jim Gordon can absolutely give us a little bit of a helping hand here in terms of what we're going through with the pandemic. And uh, Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here with you. So uh, Jim wrote a book, just so everybody knows, and this is all going to be in the show notes and uh you'll be able to get linked up with it because it's a, uh, it is a book. As I said, Jim is is somebody who's been doing this kind of work for a long, long time. The book is called the transformation discovering wholeness and healing after trauma. And uh I will say, I was just telling Jim that I, just took a little bit of a gander here. I hadn't really looked at the uh, at the you know inside jacket where they they give a little bit of bio. And uh, Jim's been uh, the director of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine and uh, created and implemented what may well be the world's largest and most effective program for healing population-wide psychological drama. Okay, we've now got Jim a real <laughs> worldwide psychological trauma do we not i mean boy and look where we are right now with this pandemic and uh, the, the the way that it's uh, affecting every human being on this planet um and and you said to me yeah i'm i'm a little bit overwhelmed right now and i pff, i can imagine that but uh, yeah let me know what's going on in your world in this moment well what's going on is we're trying to
1: do our best to get out the information and the tools and techniques that we use of self-awareness self-care and group support and make them available to everyone who needs them wherever they are so we're doing a series of webinars we have a good deal of material on our website to teach people practical techniques of meditation uh self-expression in words drawings and movement we're bringing our uh, training programs in mind body medicine online to serve uh, hospital systems communities that have been devastated previously by the opioid epidemic uh communities that have dealt with climate related disasters around the world and so we're bringing our whole program that we've been doing in person online And also reaching out to now a primary group that we're trying to connect with are the people on the front lines, the healthcare workers and first responders.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. You know, Jim, just so everybody can get an idea of uh, who you are and where you come from, can you tell us a little bit about how this all um, formulated for you uh, as a young man that led you into your interest in trauma and uh you know actually much more than that and uh yeah just talk a little bit about you know how how you grew up into this
1: well i uh i grew up in the 60s and so i was uh sort of intimately interested in the connection between my own what i was discovering about myself and uh, and what was going on in the world. So I was very uh, involved in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And I was also beginning in the early 60s to explore other forms of consciousness is while I was still a student at Harvard Medical School. Mm. And so there was a kind of openness to what could uh, deepen and expand my own experience of the world and also how I could be helpful and how I could help do whatever i could both as one person and as part of larger movements to bring a little bit more justice a little bit more kindness a little bit more humanity to the world
0: Hmm. did you uh jim did it just comes to mind did you bump into richard Alpert and tim leary i did
1: i i I did indeed not at harvard but uh, but but afterwards and uh I sort of found out about him while I was still in medical school didn't know him didn't meet him till till later and he was a he was an example he was like a an elder brother as I know he was to many people somebody who had made who had gone on some of these exploratory missions before me and was inspiring me to do similar kinds of things
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so I, I really didn't get to know I don't think I met him until the 70s but by that time i was already well on my way to exploring other forms of consciousness and also to creating new models of mental health to moving outside of the kind of conventional medical uh, model way of looking at at human beings and understanding that was most what was most important was each person's experience and that there was a kind of um a potential for depth and growth even in the most challenging trying psychological experiences. Mm. And I was somebody who began both as a medical student and then as a psychiatric resident to want to facilitate those experiences. I became interested in work of R. D. Lang, uh and I went to London in mm. uh, Right. 1970 spent time with him really and wound up writing a cover story for the Atlantic called Who Is Mad, Who Is Sane? The Radical Psychiatry of R. D. Lang. Yeah. And then I created a similar kind of uh, situation, a similar kind of democratic situation where patients and doctors and therapists and staff we were in an environment where we all could learn from each other, where the distinctions between staff and patients were at least to some degree, those were blurred. And the most important mm-hmm. thing was that we were all human beings and that we could all learn together and grow together. So that was kind of the, uh, a, a, um, a, a Petri dish, if you will, for my own experimentation, my own experience, and my own interest in each person's capacity for transformative experience.
0: Mm. You know, you, uh, you talk about uh, a man named Robert Coles, uh, who was a young psychiatrist I, when you were just getting going at the Harvard Health Services, and, and you talk about how uh, early ch- uh, childhood trauma of loss and forgotten abuse had made you more Vulnerable to present loss, and he said an example of, of personal vulnerability and uh, courageous commitment. Um, talk about that, because to me that's a, such an extraordinarily important part. I mean, it's just, it's the. I mean, Ram Dass focused on this work uh, a lot over his uh, over the decades. In fact, this uh, current movie we have uh, called "Becoming Nobody." Um, very the whole thing opens up around uh, the uh around the awareness of the identity that we take on through causes and conditions and and the habitual patterns and the neurotic tendencies and all of it until that is, there's a recognition there it, it's a tough road a to hoe in life in in my opinion but can you talk about that uh sure there?
1: well i you know i i think that 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 bob coles who was then a research psychiatrist at harvard and uh he was helping the 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 young black kids integrate the schools in new orleans this is the late 50s early 1960s i met him in about 19 oh i guess 1963 1964 and uh he was true as ramdas was is as i am to the deep understanding that's there in modern psychiatry of the shaping force of early life experience on later emotional life, later behavior, later ways of looking at the world. And that unfortunately, we've, we've tended to lose sight of this. This is the great insight of Freud and of modern psychiatry. And all of us absorbed that. And we, you know, we understood it in somewhat different ways. So when I went to, uh, when I began therapy with Bob Coles, when I was in in medical school, I was drawn to him because of the work that he was doing with the the black kids who were integrating the schools in New Orleans. And when I met him, I felt like I was also, I was meeting a kindred spirit, not only somebody who was deeply immersed in the civil rights movement, but somebody who was uh, questioning the conventional norms in psychiatry. And he was the one who actually, aside from being a, a guide for me and a partner for me as I dealt with my own psychological challenges, including my own vulnerability, uh, he was also an example of what I could be as a psychiatrist, that I that I could look for more humane ways of working with other people, that I could focus uh, both on the... Sort of appreciate the deep insights of psychoanalysis and of depth psychology. And at the same time, that I could understand the interaction between psychiatrists and patients as being fundamentally a human interaction, a kind of existential meeting rather than a kind of top down encounter from the authoritarian doctor between the authoritarian doctor and the submissive patient. And and mm. so I had that different kind of relationship with Bob that we were, you know, he was there to help me, but we were discovering things together and there was a real excitement and a possibility as well as great compassion. So it was mm. very important to me uh, personally and very important to the way I developed as a, as a psychiatrist.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because we're talking about identity and we're talking about the ways in which if you are completely identified with that identity uh, things can be very difficult on a day-to-day basis and then you say that this that bob helped you to to appreciate your identity an un- enduring sense of myself that has pulled me through troubled times and i think this is really important because it's not like we're not we're going to be walking around without identity ego roles it's a matter of the attachment to him but talk about yeah this enduring sense of self that pulled you through troubled times that's an interesting thought
1: yeah no it, it was i you know i think it's important there is a there's a lineage here and uh, bob and i were both bob much closer were students of eric erickson who was the great scholar and the great kind of poet of of identity and of identity formation and that uh, it's very so erikson was also an inspiration to me mm-hmm. and and i think the the idea is that i began to yes discover a sense of my own identity and at the same time uh have a sense of all the change that was happening in me and around me and that that i had both a sense of self that was consistent and at the same time an appreciation of how everything was always changing a kind of uh, and i began even then and much more later on when i was a psychiatric resident and then in the years after as a researcher at the national institute of mental health a a kind of appreciation for the meditative mind Mm. which of course is you know one of ramdas's major contributions is helping Helping so many of us to appreciate our own meditative mind, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I think that um, I think it's important for it's important for me, and I think important for all of us to acknowledge those people who are our teachers and who gave us gave us so much, and and continue to. One of the people I dedicated my my book, The Transformation: Discovering Wholeness and Healing after trauma uh, i i bet de- bob is one of the people i dedicated that book to a, along with several other teachers of mine
0: mm, yeah yeah um there's a i just got to read something um uh, jim because it's just so central to everything and central to what we're going through right now trauma comes to all of us and its consequences can be terrible that's the truth and the bad news The good news is that all of us can use tools of self-awareness and self-care to heal our trauma, indeed, to become healthier and more whole than we've ever been. If we accept the pain that trauma inflicts, it can open our minds and bodies to healing change. And I think this is the key here. If we relax with the chaos it brings, a new, more flexible and more stable order can emerge. Our broken hearts can open with tender consideration and new love for others, as well as ourselves, and I've been talking about this on on podcasts lately. Just what this pandemic is is uh, to say positive uh, aspects of it can be difficult in in terms of all the suffering, but certainly um, this 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 broken heart that we all have is opening uh, this uh, this consideration and, and love for others and caring. So that's that's a a very powerful thing going on right now, right?
1: Thank you. No, I appreciate your reading reading that passage from the transformation. Yes, and I think it's di- as you know, as I said, and as you're saying now, it's often difficult to appreciate when we're in the middle of it. But those possibilities are there uh, if we first understand that that those possibilities are there, and then begin to bring ourselves into balance, begin to balance out the disruption, the prolonged fight or flight and freeze responses that we have when we're when we're so threatened. And then our, allow ourselves to access the the possibilities that exist within each of us. I, then we can discover what the, you know, the researchers are now called co- what I've spoke about in my own words but the researchers are now calling post-traumatic growth and hopefully that will come out of this Hmm. not only for us as individuals but for all of us on the planet that will you know we'll wake up to the kinds of appreciation the kinds of celebration the kinds of connection that are necessary if we're going to survive and thrive as a species
0: yeah yeah um also, by the way, uh, we talk about teachers. Uh, how about Viktor Frankl? I mean, uh, who? Any of you who don't know, he he wrote a, a a small memoir called *Man's Search for Meaning*. Meaning, and he was a, an Austrian uh, psychiatrist, Jewish psychiatrist, who was confined in a concentration camp in the midst of the most in, inhumane abuse and suffering. and he, he said think I mean and, and uh, Jim you quoted in your book suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning uh, I mean this is also a, a great great uh, quote and from from a real teacher because this man was in the thick of uh, the most inhumane suffering that you could possibly experience obviously in those camps Um and i I like also uh at some point, and this is all you know we're just we're just in the introduction here. This would take like about five podcasts to to really get through <laughs> all of the material here but um but you know, you talk about expanding the the work to include the spiritual was more challenging, and then uh, I think indigenous healers came into your uh, frame of reference and consciousness. Tell tell us about how that all happened, and and what were the challenges about including the spiritual plane. Well, well to me there isn't anything but that, but I, I know what you mean in this case.
1: I think I think some of the challenges were internal for me. That um, you know, I grew up in a, in a, a secular secular Jewish world. <coughs> Excuse me, went to you know Harvard College and Harvard Medical School, sort of uh, high temples ostensibly of reason and academic scholastic argument and um religion was not a uh you know not something and spiritual experience was not something that was terribly valued but on the other hand as a as a young person i i knew that that's what i was that that was crucially important to me and my tutor at harvard whom i uh talk about in the book william alfred was a, a beautiful man, a, a kind of Christian saint who was kind and generous to everybody. Everybody who showed up his door at his door, from the Nobel laureates who flocked to see him because he was a wonderful poet and such a kind, generous man, to the homeless people who are banging on his doors at all hours and saying, "Professor, professor, I need this, I need that, I need the other thing." But he was—he was my teacher too. So I, I had this yearning. And in a place like medical school, Harvard Medical School, or for that matter, my residency program, the spiritual was not really discussed or, or, or valued in any, any way that I could discern. But I knew that it was important to me. And I began to understand as I worked with other people that it was a dimension that could give meaning and purpose to everyone's life. So mm-hmm. by the time I got to uh, the National Institute of Mental Health and that quest was very much there in me, I was uh, you know, reading widely in spiritual literature. Of course, I read Be Here Now at the time. I was reading the *Bhagavad Gita and the Tao Te Ching and uh, many the Paramahansa Yogananda and the new testament and uh, saint francis and and i just uh the, the question was how to bring this into a model of health care that would be accessible to everyone i was asking this question as a researcher at the national institute of mental health as i began to uh construct not, not just me but all, but also with my colleagues all over the country we began to create this new medicine that we we're sometimes calling holistic or integrative medicine and we we knew that the spiritual dimension had to be part of it and the question for me was well how do i talk about this to my bosses at nimh how do i talk about it to um i, I was running a study for the uh, the president's commission on mental health for jimmy carter's commission how do i talk about it there how do i talk about it in terms that can be understood by scientists and so it was a it was a kind of struggle for me but what became clear and, and what i was able to do is is really to say that this is the dimension that gives uh, ultimate meaning uh, ultimate meaning being a ultimate concern was paul Tillich's phrase he was uh-huh. a, a great Protestant theologian who was also a teacher of mine when I was at Harvard. But how do we find the ultimate meaning and purpose of our lives? Whatever we call it, that dimension is spiritual. That connection mm, to mm. something beyond ourselves. It's never easy for anyone to talk about the spiritual. I mean, Lao Tzu says the way that can be described is not the way. So yeah. it's a, it's a struggle and then a struggle to talk about it to people who are not particularly inclined to pay attention to it
0: yeah uh but i i also this is a small thing and again it's still in the very beginning of the book but that you met this being sham singa was of some import to you uh it, there's not much you say about it but i think it was had to have been something really meaningful for you
1: well sham sham is somebody i met in uh 1973 and he was a uh kashmiri acupuncturist herbal he'd studied for several years in china with the wandering monks. studied acupuncture and chinese medicine Mm. he was an herbalist a homeopath an acupuncturist an osteopath a naturopath he was a meditation master and he was an amazing cook on top of all that and Mm. totally outrageous and as soon as i met him i knew that he knew things that I didn't know—not just—not just information, not just facts, but that he had visited uh, psychic realms that I had only read about. I've read about them, the Paramahansa Yogananda,
2: mm.
1: and that this this guy who was uh, at that point <laughs> sitting in my living room—he he he had spent time there. He lived in these realms, and I wanted to learn. I wanted to experience at least something of what he had experienced. And I wanted to learn some of what he knew about all the different healing modalities, as well as those techniques, those meditative techniques that would give me entry to some of these other psychic realms that I'd only read about or dreamed of. So he was, he became major influence. He was a teacher of mine for 20 years. I really apprenticed with him in many ways. And he, Continually challenged me, and one of his great gifts to me was helping me to laugh at myself,
0: Mm, not take myself seriously. Big one. Wow, yeah. Uh, He was
1: great. Totally outrageous, impossible in many ways, and a very, very great teacher for me.
0: Mm, Wonderful. Now, um, just so everybody out there who's uh, listening and thinking that this book is only one thing, Uh, It is more than one thing. And uh, Jim is very involved in, in, you know, in integrative medicine. And uh, so as I'm reading along here, I suddenly come upon a chapter. Your gut is under siege, buddy. And I'm thinking, oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. I mean, the years I've spent in India, the indigestion I'm dealing with and all that. And then, uh, you know, as we read further stuff like craving comfort at this time, you know, uh, isn't it something that when there's any kind of trauma or uh, anything that you're facing, why do we just turn to get me some French fries, a Coke and a burger uh, kind of a deal? Although that's not what I would particularly want, but you know, it gives a good, a, this is, um, but first talk about the integrative aspect of the work. Well, when i was when i was at the national institute of mental
1: health beginning in the 1970s i i became interested in how we could create a medicine that maximized our capacity for self-healing uh, a medicine that was not totally dependent and insofar as possible independent of interventions that had significant negative side effects so i became interested in all those approaches which could enhance our inherent capacity for healing. What Hippocrates uh, called the vis medicatrix naturae. What He he would have called that if he spoke Latin, but he spoke Greek. It means the healing force of nature. Mm -hmm. And what do we do? How do we use food and herbs and acupuncture, meditation and movement and dance and uh, self-expression to maximize our own capacity for self-healing as opposed to immediately resorting to uh, pharmacological or surgical interventions, which um, often had negative side effects and were, as I began to realize by the early 1970s, were vastly overused. So I, I was interested in, this was part of my challenge and my job as a researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health, to help create, I made it my job, to help create this model of integrative medicine that used conventional Western medicine only where appropriate and that integrated it with all of these other approaches that maximized our own capacity for self-healing. And so I pulled together while I was at NIMH, I, I pulled together people from all over the country. I think it was just pretty much a, a U.S. program at that point, who were doing the most interesting research, the most interesting clinical work with all of these different approaches. And uh, we published a, a couple of volumes. With I had other people who worked on it with me, people from the Institute of Noetic Sciences, there's Arthur Hastings and Jim Fadiman, and mm-hmm. also Dennis Jaffe and David Bressler on another volume. And w- we brought together the, the best minds to sort of, borrow the phrase from Allen Ginsberg, the best minds of our generation. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to know what works, what doesn't work, what's the evidence for acupuncture or herbalism or meditation or midwifery or hypnosis. And I helped, I was one of the editors pulling together all this information and publishing it in books in the late 1970s, early 80s. And at that time, I also... Uh, headed up this special study for Jimmy Carter's Commission on, uh, Presidential Commission on Mental Health, special study on alternative services. So that's the work that I have done now for 50 years is helping with many other people to create this model of integrative medicine, which is now, you know, widely understood Mm -hmm. has become an important part of our healthcare uh, landscape. But unfortunately, is still too often regarded as a specific uh, corner or a specific specialty when, in fact, this integrative approach that understands whole people in their total environment and brings in the best of all the world's healing traditions, this should be what all of us are practicing all of the time. So we we still have some ways to go on that front. But I've been involved in that now for 50 years.
0: Yeah, wow. (laughs) That's <laughs> what you say. Stressed, written in large block letters, and uh, you reverse that. It's desserts. <laughs> God, that's so great. That just starts to spell out this reality now. Which is yeah. Well, that's that. That's what you're
1: what you're touching on. Is one of the points I make <clears throat> in the transformation, which is really important. Which is why it's the longest chapter in the book. Is that. When we're under considerable stress, when we're traumatized, our gastrointestinal tract is just as upset as our mind and our brain, and just as damaged, and we need to repair the damage that has been done, and that food and supplements and herbs are the way to repair the damage to our gastrointestinal tract, which in turn will help repair the damage that's been done to our psychological functioning. And this yeah. is, and so that whole chapter is about what you can do to repair, for example, the, the, uh, the microbiome, the, which is damaged when we're under considerable stress. All those bacteria that are in our small intestine, long-term stress, like the one that we're experiencing now during this pandemic, it upsets the balance of our bacteria. Essentially, it damages the good bacteria, the good, good guys, and helps the bad ones to proliferate. So we need to rebalance our gut, partly by eating in a, a way that is healthier, uh, more whole foods, much less processed food, much less red meat, uh, and also replenish, replenish it with probiotics that we can get as supplements. Also, when we're under long-term stress, the cells, the endothelial cells, the cells that line the small intestine, they tend to separate one from another. And so molecules that should not be going into our bloodstream pass from the small intestine into our bloodstream. Molecules like gluten or some of the proteins in milk. And Mm. for some people, it doesn't make much difference But for many people, these molecules cause inflammatory reactions in our joints, in our brain, in all the organs in our body, and make us more vulnerable to what we look at and call arthritis or depression or anxiety. Some of that is coming because our gastrointestinal tract has been damaged by stress and trauma. And so we need to repair it. Yeah. And for a while we may need to not eat those foods that are causing those inflammatory reactions. Yeah, but The whole chapter outlines what we should do and what we should eat and what we should stay away from. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Chapter 10, it says, um, but wait a minute, this is so difficult. I mean, when we've suffered loss or, or this of uh, this chaotic situation we're in and the pandemic and everything that it's, uh, pushing us on, uh, so that stress, which is overwhelming, our cortisol rises, cortisol rises, and lets us know heart, lungs, and muscles need energy from sugar. That our brain has to be adequately nourished, and that's when we reach for, you know, the crap that we eat. So, what chance do we have when there's some kind of natural progression that's going on inside, that's uh, leading us into? Um, you know it's it's a
1: great question habits but the first thing we need to do is to wake up to exactly what you're saying that we are being driven to eat these comfort foods we're not it's not because we're stupid we the comfort foods help to lower the cortisol they help to increase a little serotonin a little more dopamine to make us feel calmer and also more energized at the same time so let's recognize that We can give in a little to eating some comfort foods, but we also need to know that if we keep on eating those sugary, fatty, processed foods, that in the long run, we're going to deplete those neurotransmitters, that we're going to have more stress hormones, that we're going to feel more anxious and more depressed. So that realization can tell us that we need to make a change. And yes, it takes some work and it takes some saying, okay. I'm, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm just not going to indulge myself so much. A little bit here, a little bit there. And here's where the other approaches come in. So, for example, if you're also doing some kind of meditative practice, you are a little calmer. You're not so freaked out. You're not so compelled to eat those foods. Same thing is if you're moving your body and you're exercising your body and both meditation and the exercise will increase the serotonin will help you to relax help you to be calmer and you won't feel so pressured to eat the comfort food so it's a it's a whole integrated program in which each uh, each modality each tool that you're using is helping and contributing to your to your well-being and all of them can work together so that you're not ruled by this compulsion to eat those comfort foods and you notice when you have it and i you know i'll have a little bit of a sweet or a little bit of a fatty food fine but i'm not going to eat them all day long because i'm not constantly in that state of agitation because i'm first of all i know better and second of all and i'm bringing mindfulness into my eating which is an essential part of the trauma healing diet and also because i'm using these other modalities
0: yeah yeah um, just back a little bit to uh, trauma, one thing that really caught my eye, which is actually later in the book, it's around uh, historical trauma, and uh, you you point out studies that uh, this historical trauma may not be just uh, suffering mother pr- pr- producing uh, stress hormones for her unborn child, but You're also talking about generational transmission of trauma. Can you you talk about that? These are really, uh, boy, this is tough stuff because this is outside of any of your realm of quote-unquote control, whatever that is or is
1: that's well we can't we can't control the origins but we can deal with the consequences so so what Mm -hmm. you're yeah i think this is really important research that has been done in the last 15 or 20 years and it's on what's called epigenetic changes epi is a, a, a greek prefix meaning above so these are changes in the chromosome in different Substances in the in the chromosomes, several different substances, that in turn modify the way the genes act. So it's not like the mm-hmm. radiation that bombards genes and changes the structure of the genes. These are um, changes in in substances in the chromosomes that modify the way the genes are expressed in the body. Most specifically. And importantly, in this context, they modify the way we are able to deal with stress. So when a uh, grandparent has been subject to extreme stress and the human studies have been done on Holocaust survivors. So those people who were in the concentration camps had changes, had epigenetic changes that made it more difficult for them to deal with future stress in their lives. And they passed on these epigenetic changes to their children and to their grandchildren so that the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, even those who were raised apart from their grandparents and from their parents, let's say they were adopted out or they were foster children, they have the same epigenetic changes and the same vulnerability, ex- excessive vulnerability to stress as their parents and grandparents. Mm. That's a reality. There have been animal studies that have been done that have shown exactly the same thing. So this is at least for three generations. Now, mm. that, that is, you're, you're right. That's scary and it's ominous. And it also, but there's also a a positive side to it in a sense, to knowing it at least, is that sometimes, uh, you know, we may have feelings, uh, concerns, anxieties, fears, and we say, where did that come from? Why is that here in my life? Mm. And it may be that it was passed on by a parent or a grandparent. And so you need to look to the origins in previous generations. The other point that's really important is that we can reverse these epigenetic changes and exactly the techniques that i teach in the transformation meditation and guided imagery and movement and uh, group support that all of these and and nutrition all of these can contribute to reversing these epigenetic changes so we're no longer so vulnerable to stress and trauma, and the so that we're not only uh, dealing with, you know, the present stresses and making it easier for us to deal with present stresses. We're also reversing those um, handicaps, if you will, those disabilities that were passed on to us by our parents and yeah. our grandparents. Yeah. We have the capacity to do it, and there's research that's been shown. The comprehensive programs like the one that I teach in the transformation can reverse those epigenetic changes. And with reversing those changes can help us be much more resilient, much more able to deal with whatever stress we're facing.
0: Yeah. And, uh, everybody listening right now, you know, how much I keep talking about practice, 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 and that, uh, the idea that uh, we can lead a more balanced life and deal with trauma and deal with suffering uh, and transform it without uh, uh, um, some real greasing of the effort wheel, uh, which is difficult as well, because if it's coming from the wrong place, it's going to have the opposite uh, 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 result. But, but Jim, you have a little thing. I'm going to read it because about, okay why meditate uh when we meditate we are reversing the biological damage that trauma does period meditation calms the storm it quiets the amygdala's frenzy and balances the sympathetic nervous system's fight or flight response with the rest and digest of the parasympathetic nervous systems vagus nerve okay Any? do you need any more reason to meditate uh, you'll have to take that paragraph and, and look at it jim, and read it a number of times because it's got a lot in it all right but i just uh, yeah no doubt uh and, and in our tradition and i know you jim in different parts of the book you you talk about much more than meditation you, you actually you know talk about um, physically physical expression as a way to cut through and transform. And, and one of the things that's very important in our tradition, Ramdas and us, Krishna have brought back, of course, is chant. That's like a big deal. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, I feel very strongly that's one of the, because it's music and it allows people to sort of have a little bit of sugar with the medicine, uh, it's also a very effective uh, method. Yeah, them. that's beautiful. Chanting is an expressive meditation. Technically, these yep. are
1: the oldest meditations on the planet. Chanting, dancing, singing, shaking, whirling, jumping up and down. <clears throat> these are so freeing. And they they're so effective, especially when we've been traumatized. We need them more than ever. Yeah. They help to break up that fixed pattern, those those repetitive, ruminative thoughts that drive us crazy, that tension in our body that keeps us from being free. These expressive meditations are the royal road to to freeing ourselves from this frozen, shut down bodies, these closed minds that we have. So all forms of meditation can be useful and can be so beautiful.
0: Yeah, you you see online, actually, there are dance, uh, um, interactive dance stuff going online. You know, with Zoom, people are getting together and they're putting on some music and dancing. It's it's amazing what's going on uh, through through the net at this point. Um, So let's see, here's something that caught my eye, and it's around embracing hope. Uh, so yeah we are dealing with a lot of hopelessness at this point we are dealing with the threat of uh, getting sick and potential of uh, of dying we're dealing with the isolation we're dealing with the economic uh, disaster that is slowly building and so on um how in the world, uh, Yeah, I mean, it, you talk about it as an exquisite torture, hopelessness, but uh, the fear and the pain of it is really, really uh, uh, just terrorizing people. So, uh, yeah, talk about hope, because you, you say it's a powerful uh, medicine. Well, you
1: know, as we're talking, I'm looking out my window, and I'm fortunate enough to be able to look at some trees, and I'm seeing the new leaves on the tree Mm. And and I'm seeing that the renewal that's there in nature and that reminds me of the renewal that's possibility that's a possibility for my nature for me so this is one just little intimation of hope the what one of the things that one of the early techniques that that I teach in the transformation and that we use with populations that have been devastated by war and climate-related disaster and opioid epidemics and that we're using now with people who are doing their best to cope with the coronavirus pandemic is a series of drawings, very simple drawings. And anybody who's hearing us can do these drawings. It's a, a set of three drawings. You draw yourself. You draw yourself with your biggest problem. And then you draw yourself with your problem solved. And what happens, first, good idea to do some meditation first so you're in a kind of calm and centered place. And then just let it come. Let Whatever comes out on the page. First of all, this helps you get over self-consciousness that most of us feel about drawing. But then when we do the drawing, it helps us identify what's the biggest problem. And it may not be what we think is the biggest problem. So we may think, oh, my God, the fact that I'm going to get the coronavirus, that's my biggest problem, my biggest worry. But when it comes out on the page, the biggest worry may be, um, what am I going to do with my kid this afternoon? (laughs) She's (laughs) driving me crazy right now. So it comes out, oh, that's interesting. Uh, That's a little mini revelation. And then drawing the solution, all kinds of amazing things will come to people. That uh, so, the solution to the problem is uh, maybe I gotta uh, do a little. Um, my my goddaughter was doing this with with her children. Maybe what we gotta do is make a magic wand that comes to her as a solution with her little five year old. Let's make a magic wand, and and that came out of her own intuition, her own unconscious. And she and her her daughter, her five-year-old daughter, did it. And it was an amazing experience for both yeah, of them. Yeah. So it's a sense that we have resources, that we have possibilities, that there are solutions that are available to us if we open our minds and open our hearts and allow them to come to us. That gives us hope. And what also gives us hope is the use of any of these techniques, In the beginning of of the transformation, I teach a very simple, concentrative meditation, slow, deep breathing, Mm -hmm. in through the nose, out through the mouth, with the belly soft and relaxed. I learned it from Stephen Levine almost 50 years ago. It's fundamental, foundational. As you do that, you do that for 10 minutes or so, you notice there's a change. Oh. I feel a little calmer. Maybe my shoulders are a little more relaxed. Maybe when I open my eyes and look around, the room looks a little brighter. That indicates, first of all, that you can help yourself. And second of all, that change is possible. So it gives you hope that if you can make one change, well, other changes may be possible as well. That automatically comes from having an experience of creating a change for yourself. And it could be through soft belly breathing. It could be through chanting, it could be through shaking and dancing. It could be for going going for a walk in nature. So there is hope that change is possible. You may not mm-hmm. be able to change the you know epidemiology of the coronavirus, although you can certainly help by, you know, social distancing and being careful, but you can make a change in yourself. You can make a change in how you deal with it. And that gives you hope. It gives me hope.
0: Yeah, uh, Jim. Just, uh, just again, go over this, this, this particular practice, this soft belly, Stephen Levine's thing, because uh, I'm now remembering how important it is just to give people a little bit more detail on how to do it. Okay, sure. So we can, they can do it with us. And, okay. Uh, <laughs> so let's just
1: sit comfortably in a chair whatever is comfortable for you and allow your breathing to deepen. Let your eyes close and remove a great deal of external stimulation. Breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth with your belly soft and relaxed. And this is a concentrative meditation So you're concentrating on the breath coming in through your nose and going out through your mouth. Perhaps concentrating on the word soft as you breathe in and belly as you breathe out and on the feeling of your belly being soft and relaxed. And as you do this, you're bringing more air to the bottom of your lungs where there's better oxygen exchange more oxygen enters the bloodstream and feeds all the cells in our bodies and as we breathe this way slowly and deeply in through the nose and out through the mouth with our belly soft and relaxed we're activating the vagus nerve, which we mentioned before, V-A-G-U-S. Vagus means wandering in Latin. And this big nerve wanders up from our belly through our chest back to the central nervous system to the brain, slows pulse rate, slows our heart rate, lowers blood pressure, relaxes the big muscles in our bodies, quiets activity in the amygdala, the center for fear and anger in the emotional brain, enhances activity in the frontal part of our cerebral cortex and areas responsible for self-awareness, thoughtful decision-making, and compassion. This is the antidote to the fight or flight response, to the stress response. And one branch of the vagus nerve connects with other nerves that are responsible for speech and facial expression. So when we breathe like this slowly and deeply in through the nose and out through the mouth with our belly soft and relaxed, we're quieting our body, calming our mind, and the fight or flight response. We're enhancing our capacity for awareness and appreciation and making good judgments and connecting with other people. And breathing slowly and deeply like this in through the nose and out through the mouth with the belly soft and relaxed, all the muscles in our body are relaxing and we can do this for a couple more minutes and you can feel as you exhale the muscles in your body
2: relaxing
1: feeling the relaxation in your pelvis and your buttocks and your belly as you exhale
2: in your legs and feet Feeling the muscles relax all up and down your back. Feeling the muscles relax in your chest and shoulders as you exhale. Feeling the relaxation in your arms and hands. Feel the muscles relax in your neck and face and head. feeling your whole body relax with each exhalation. To encourage this process, remember to say to yourself, (laughs) soft as you breathe in and belly as you breathe out.
1: Focusing, concentrating on the breath, on soft belly.
2: If thoughts come, let them come, notice them, Let them go. Gently bring your mind back to soft belly.
1: And slowly gently open your eyes let your attention come back in the room
0: great meditation great yeah. meditation thank you so much jim and it really uh as an another part of the book that uh, i thought was really important it's a, around making friends with emotions with your emotions and you talk about you know the continuum from relax- relaxation, which soft belly is the methodology to get there, and then awareness, and then expression is uh, very very important. I mean, uh, uh, I, something that we talk about all the time in the different retreats, workshops, and everything that we do is exactly this: making friends. Uh, is so important because when we're running away from whatever it may be it enhances the power of that trauma or that negative uh, uh negativity Beautiful. of any sort yeah um and i i'll just uh, kind of uh we're kind of at the end here of our uh, allotted time jim and i know you're a busy man uh, but just one other thing from the book uh, that i think's really uh, i'd like to read is sort of the Finale here. When we welcome and express our emotions, we are, like ancient Greeks in the amphitheater, inviting those painful feelings to possess us for a while and then leave us. As we do, we free up the compassion and love, the joy and creativity that have been buried with our painful emotions. That is very, very astute and insightful. And I think if we do these practices, that we will find that that truth will surface. And especially in these times uh, with uh, the kinds of emotions that we are subject to by virtue of the fear and anxiety and uh, not knowing what's coming. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Jim, for this book, The Transformation. Everybody, uh, you will uh, see all the links to Jim's work and the book on the show notes so uh again wow keep up the this great work that you're doing jim it's so thank you ragu
1: and thank you for this conversation i i feel good i feel much better after too <laughs> <It's really laughs> me fun. too
0: i'm glad i uh prompted you on the meditation i had no idea we were going to do that but uh, you know and uh uh again uh let's continue i i'd love to for us to chat again Please uh, and I'll, let's do I'll bug it. Buggy about that. And meanwhile, everybody, this is mind rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to Be Here Now mind rolling. And uh, you also can take advantage of the other incredible teachers, podcasters from Ramdas to Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein. We got them all here, Jim. All of them, (laughs) it's just uh, our our compendium here of just fabulous uh, transmitters is, uh, and and there's something else in this book about a wise guide, right? And uh, again, uh, we'll have to take this up as we go uh, further into the future because there's so much here. So thanks again. i look forward to it. I appreciate being in that company of of teachers. So thank you very much, Raghu. Uh, Thank you, Jim.